Hello, and welcome to the Ephesians in August podcast, Episode 5, Prayer Interrupted. For the second time in our journey through Ephesians, we are considering one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Perhaps one of the lessons we are learning is that prayer is crucial for the Christian life and for the life of the Church. Commenting on this section of Ephesians, N.T. Wright emphasizes the importance of prayer for ministry and mission. He writes, One of the great Christian leaders of the late 20th century, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of Cape Town, used to spend several hours in prayer very early in the morning. Nor was prayer then forgotten for the rest of the day. A friend of mine who traveled around with him described how wherever they went, whatever new thing they were doing, Desmond would pause and pray. The Western Church has perhaps allowed itself to be lulled into thinking that prayer and action are at opposite ends of the scale of Christian activity. On the contrary, those who want their actions to be effective for God's kingdom, as Desmond Tutus undoubtedly were, should redouble their time and effort in prayer. I am challenged by Wright's words. While we are eager to reach out into our communities and minister to those around us, we cannot neglect the vital activity of prayer. If we want to be involved in God's kingdom work, we need to pray. We need to pray as Paul prayed. Chapter 3 begins with the words, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. The phrase, for this reason, provides a clear link back to the first part of the letter. In this section, Paul intends to wrap up his initial reflections with a prayerful conclusion before moving on to the ethical exhortations of chapters 4 to 6. Up to this point, the letter has focused upon the reader's identity in Christ. Through the language of worship in chapter 1, Paul reminds his readers of the gracious activity on behalf, on their behalf in granting them numerous spiritual blessings in Christ. In chapter 2, he reinforces the greatness of God's grace for them by using the language of anamnesis, the recalling of the past, in ways that are formative for the present. They are reminded that they were once spiritually dead, but now alive in Christ. They were once estranged from God, but now reconciled to Him. They were once outsiders of God's household, but now they are part of the new humanity that God is creating. Paul reassures his Gentile readers that they were never simply plan B in God's ultimate plan for the cosmos. They are an integral part of the new thing that God is building. Deeply moved by these sublime thoughts, Paul offers a prayer for his readers that they would fully grasp the immeasurable dimensions of God's love and grace toward them. But Paul's prayer gets interrupted by a slight yet significant digression. 
The natural course of this prayer report should have been, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father. The beginning of his prayer report in verse 1 is picked up again in verse 14. This is indicated by the repetition of the phrase, for this reason, tu tu karin, in both verses, and the nominative ego paulos in verse 1, which is linked to the verb, I bend the knee, or kempto, in verse 14. It appears that his self-description in verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, has sparked some reflections on his calling and ministry as apostle to the Gentiles. Here we learn that Paul is writing this letter during his imprisonment due to his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. Paul's letters and the book of Acts tell us of how Paul the Pharisee became Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. We see in these various passages his dedication to that calling, which, in the words of Brian McLaren, was to forge the nascent fellowship of Jesus into a truly multicultural community, one body composed of Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, educated and uneducated. To fulfill this mission, Paul tirelessly travels throughout the Mediterranean world, preaching the good news and establishing communities of Christian believers. Throughout his ministry, he confronts passionately, at times vehemently, anyone who seeks to divide asunder the diverse community that God has joined together in Christ. In this digression, Paul tells us about the mystery, which is God's plan for cosmic reconciliation. It is a mystery that was once hidden, but is now revealed to all creation. Paul writes in verse 6, This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. God's mission of cosmic reconciliation begins with the cultural divide in the first century world. The Gentiles, once outsiders to the covenant people of God, are now co-heirs, co-members of Christ's body, and co-sharers of the promise. In the service of God's grand mission, Paul has played many roles. A housekeeper in God's household of grace, a conduit for the revelation of God's plan, a servant of the gospel, a preacher of the good news of Christ's boundless riches to the Gentiles, and one who sheds light on the outworking of God's plan. But Paul is neither boastful nor arrogant about his part in God's plan, for he emphasizes that his calling and ministry were according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of His power. This is a lesson in humility to all who are involved in God's mission. 
We can never be consumed by our own gifts, abilities, or self-importance. Because in the end, we are all servants of the gospel, according to the gift of God's grace. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles eventually gets him into some real hot water. The book of Acts tells us of Paul's final and fateful journey to Jerusalem and the riot that ensued because of his presence there. This sets off a chain of events that eventually leads to his imprisonment in Rome, where the letter to the Ephesians was likely written. Paul's dream of getting to Rome is fulfilled, but in a way that he didn't anticipate. He is in chains because of his commitment to Christ. Is he bitter? Is he angry? Is he regretful? Listen to the closing words of his reflections in verse 13. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Paul is asking his readers not to lose heart or be discouraged because of the trials and tribulations that are the result of his ministry to them. Instead, he declares that my troubles are your glory. I find it inspiring that Paul could look beyond his suffering and see how his ministry resulted in the glory of God, both present and future, at work in the lives of those he ministered to. It is an encouragement to all who minister that while ministry is challenging, brings hardship, and entails personal sacrifice, we should always be encouraged by the result, God's presence in the lives of the people we minister to. In other words, no matter what, it's worth it. Paul's reflections on God's work in the world and in the lives of his readers move him to pray. Verse 14 reads, When I think of the wisdom and scope of God's plan, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father. Understanding God's will for creation motivates Paul to pray on behalf of his readers that God would continue to work in their lives. John Stott explains it like this. The basis of Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose. It was because of what God had done in Christ and revealed to Paul that he had necessary warrant to pray. For the indispensable prelude to all petition is the revelation of God's will. We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to be his will. That is why Bible reading and prayer should go, always go together. For it is in Scripture that God has disclosed His will, and it is in prayer that we ask Him to do it. Paul approaches God in prayer with reverence and within a relationship. His prayer posture is on his knees, which is significant because the typical position for Jewish prayer was standing. Kneeling in prayer was unusual, and it indicated an awe and reverence for God. While in this posture of reverence, Paul prays to the Father, indicating respect, but also a relationship built on love. Calling God our Father acknowledges His care, concern, and love for us, 
and our dependence upon Him as His children. Paul's description of God in verse 15 describes God's parental care over all creation. Verses 14 and 15 read, I bend my knees to the Father, pros ton patera, from whom every family, pasa patria, in heaven and on earth is named. The idea here is that God, the Father, pater, names every family, patria, or social group in all creation. In the ancient world, the father's act of naming his child entailed two related notions, paternity and authority. This verse, then, is affirming that God, the Father, is the creator, the Father over all creation, but he's also Lord over all creation. On bended knees, Paul presents three interrelated requests for the church to his heavenly Father. Paul prays that God would spiritually strengthen them, that they would know and experience the full breadth of Christ's love, and they would be filled with the fullness of God. The first request is found in verse 16. I pray that, according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened in your inner being with power through His Spirit. For individuals and churches that feel powerless, God provides us with spiritual strength. Paul's language here assures us of the inexhaustible quality of God's power, describing them as glorious, unlimited resources, literally the riches of his glory. He asked that God, from his glorious and unlimited resources, would strengthen and empower the inner person of his readers through his Spirit. The agent and the source of God's power is the Holy Spirit, and the place where he works is in the inner lives of people. The inner self is the place where God communes. It is the base of operations at the center of a person's being, where the Holy Spirit does his strengthening and renovating work. An old classmate of mine used to say that God works on us from the inside out. He changes us on the inside, and this impacts how we live our lives on the outside. Still addressing the inner life of the Christian believer, Paul prays in verse 17, And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Many of us have heard or used the expression, asking Jesus into your heart, as a way of explaining the act of becoming a follower of Jesus. This may prompt us to ask, doesn't Christ dwell by his Spirit within the heart of every Christian believer? In response to this question, John Stott cites the famous theologian Charles Hodge, who wrote, The indwelling of the Spirit is a thing of degrees. In other words, when we come to faith, Christ enters, Christ enters our hearts through his Spirit, but he wants to make himself more and more at home in our hearts. Jesus is not just a guest that come by, comes by once a week and rents a room. He is a permanent resident. 
This idea is reflected in Paul's use of the Greek verb kat oikeo to describe Christ's indwelling of our hearts. C.G. Mool nicely draws out this meaning. The word selected is a word made expressly to denote residence against lodging, the abode of a master within his own home, as against the turning aside for the night of the wayfarer who will be gone tomorrow. Andrew Lincoln explains that the implication of this expression is that the character of Christ, the pattern of the Christ event, should increasingly dominate and shape the whole orientation of their lives. The next part of Paul's prayer is focused on the role of love within the life of the Christian. He writes that you are being rooted and grounded in love. There are two complementary images here, one of planting and one of building. First, we are rooted in God's love. When Christ makes his home in our hearts, we're like a plant whose roots go deep into God's love. We draw life and strength from God's love, just as a plant draws water and nutrients from the soil through the root system. Second, our foundation is God's love. When Christ takes up permanent residence in our hearts, we are like a building whose foundation is God's love. The foundation of his love directs, shapes, and finds expression in our lives. God's love forms the very basis of our living in the world. Paul then stresses the impact of God's love in the lives of Christians in verses 18 and 19. He writes, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's prayer is that all Christians would be able to comprehend the full dimensions of God's love, to grasp how much God loves them. Reflecting on these verses, John Stott wrote, The love of God is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. God's love is great, but we need to know it deep down in our hearts. Thomas Merton once wrote, There are so many Christians who have practically no idea of the immense love of God for them and the power of that love to do them good, to bring them happiness. How much does God love us? God's love for us can be seen in the full dimensions of the cross of Christ. For its upright pole reached down into the earth and pointed up to heaven, while its crossbar bar carried the arms of Jesus, stretched out as if to invite and welcome the whole world. God loves you, no matter who you are, where you've come from, or where you're going. Let that truth sink into your heads and hearts. God's love for you is so great that it is beyond our capacity as humans to fully comprehend it. 
Paul's prayer comes to a climax with these words, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems like an impossible proposition that God's fullness could fill our lives. We consider ourselves tiny and insignificant, and we say along with the psalmist, what are mortals that you should think of us? Yet God desires to fill us with his fullness, his presence, his power, his love, and his life. As the church, we are already the body of Christ and filled by Christ. Yet we are still in the process of growing and being filled toward the fullness of God. Certainly this prayer will be completely fulfilled only when we stand before God at the end of the age. At the same time, this petition indicates God's desire that we should be growing daily toward the final goal of God's fullness as the Holy Spirit renews us and Christ dwells in our hearts more and more. When we look back at Paul's prayer, we can't help but be struck by the sheer audacity of it. The scope of this prayer is beyond us that God could strengthen our inner person with his Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts more and more, that God's love would be the soil that we grow in and the foundation that we build upon, that we would know the greatness of Christ's love for us, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. It seems impossible. Yet, what seems impossible to us is more than possible for God. Chapter 3 ends with a beautiful doxology that reminds us of the great possibilities with God. But my time for this podcast is up, so tune into the next episode where I'll talk about this wonderful doxology and move on to the first part of chapter 4. Until then, keep on reading. Ephesians. And God bless you.